Well, this week I really need to hear what Romans 6 had to say. And I think perhaps you do too. Uh, Here's how my week went. I think it was a pretty normal week for me. Someone says or does something that hurts me uh, and my temptation is to want to get even or perhaps to feel sorry for myself, how I don't deserve to be treated like that. Or things don't turn out the way I'd like and I get frustrated and I'm tempted to lose my temper. Or I'm running late for a meeting, I'm impatient and the car in front is driving under the speed limit. Can you believe it? How inconsiderate is that? And I get annoyed. I walk past the homeless guy sitting on the footpath. I could stop and help, but who knows what inconvenient things might flow from that. And besides, I'm tired and it's been a long week. Uh, I could spend time with God in prayer uh, and Bible reading, it's what I need, or I could just chill out and watch Netflix. Uh, This past week has had uh, countless choices, decisions where it's been clear, there's been no doubt what the Christian thing to do is, but decisions where at least some of the time I've deliberately chosen to do the opposite. I thought, does it really matter if I do the wrong thing this time? Or or I don't do the right thing? Can't can't I just take the easy option, this one, the self-centred option? Does a little sin really matter? After all, I'm saved by grace. My salvation doesn't depend on my works. I can't earn it. Why not just give in a little bit and ask for forgiveness? God still loves me. That's how my week has been, so I really need to hear what God has to say in Romans chapter 6, and I think perhaps you do too. Romans 6 is answering this very question, why not just sin a little bit more and then get forgiven? You remember chapters 3 to 5, they're describing how we can't earn our salvation. The only way it can happen is if God does it freely, by his grace, because of the work of Jesus. And chapter 5 concludes, no matter how much sin there is, there is more than enough grace to cover it. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. There's no no such thing as too much sin. That's how chapter 5 finishes. But it begs the question Paul begins uh, uh, chapter 6 with. Verse 1, it's the question I need an answer to, I need to hear the answer to. Why not just sin more to get more grace? Uh, See there in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? If grace is free, why not just load up? In some ways it seems like the obvious question, doesn't it? Grace just seems to offer more opportunity to sin. You know those lollies on the counter at the bank or the, the hairdresser or the, 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 the shop? That, and there's just this free basket of lollies. Why not just fill up your pockets? Or the toiletries in the hotel room. They're complimentary, aren't they? I mean, you've paid for them. Just fill up your suitcase. But Paul gives the strong answer to the question, by no means, absolutely not. And then he goes on to describe what happens when someone becomes a Christian. Verse 2, he says, we died to sin. 
How can we live in it any longer? Now, it's a description. It's not a command. He could just come out and say, shall we go on sinning? No. Cut it out. Just stop it. He could say that, but he doesn't. He doesn't just give the command. He gives us a description. You died to sin. If you're a Christian, you've died to sin. The realm of sin is where you used to live. But now you're dead to that. You've changed your address. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 2 says that we're standing in grace. It's the wrong question, shall we go on sinning? It's a question from the history books. It's from the dark ages, from BC, before Christ. So to actually consider the idea of sinning more, that's not what you do when you're dead to sin. That's for people who, who live in sin, not stand in grace. But what does it mean that we've died to sin? Is it just a, a mental switch? Is it just a, a way of thinking about sin? Uh, like the shamed family who say to their son who's disgraced them, you're dead to us, e- even though he's not dead? Is, is that what it means? Or is it wishful thinking? Imagining sin to be powerless in your life when it's not really? Uh, it's completely unrealistic. Wishing it was sunny today when it's been pouring rain? Is that what it's like to to be dead to sin? Well, no, Paul gives us the answer uh, to do with this idea of representatives, how Jesus represents us. Think about it this way. Our national sporting teams are our representatives. Let's say the men's cricket team, the women's netball team. In one sense, Australia plays other countries in those sports. But in another sense, of course, they don't. It's not the whole country playing some other whole country. You'd need a rather large field or court to play if it was a whole country playing each other. When we say Australia is playing in those sports, we mean, of course, our representatives are playing in those sports. And so, in a sense, they are playing on our behalf. And so, when they win, we can say, we won. Our representatives won, and therefore we won also. And that's the the point Paul makes in verse 3. He says, we died to sin because our representative Jesus died to sin. Let's work out what he's saying. Let's pull apart the language because there's a lot in those few verses. Jump down to verse 10 for a moment. The first step is to consider what happened to Jesus. Verse 10 says, the death he died... He died to sin once for all. Small number of words, but it's saying a lot. It's saying Jesus died as a punishment for sins committed. He died to put an end to sin. He died once for the sins of all. But how does that affect us? Well, step two, if we're we're Christian, then Jesus is our representative. Jump back up to verse 3, where it says, Don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? When you became a Christian, when you trusted Jesus, God connected you to Jesus. God joined his spirit to yours. Baptism is a visible sign of that happening. You were baptised into Jesus. You were joined to him and he becomes your representative. And so his death becomes your death. 
His sinless uh, shoulders bear the weight of your sin. He stands in your place. And so that means, step three, in a sense, you died for your sin. Your representative died, and because you're in Jesus, you died. You are a dead man walking. Uh, Jesus died, and God joined you to him, and so you died for your sin. And so what that means, according to verse 2, is that it, it, it doesn't make sense to live in sin anymore. It doesn't make sense to, to cherish sin, to hold on to it. It doesn't make sense to, to look for opportunities, to wallow in sin, to make excuses, to go on sinning, like I was tempted to this week. Because Paul says you're dead to sin. You died when your representative Jesus died. Sin only holds power over someone if they're alive. If you're dead, sin sin can't do anything to you. And that means sin has no power over you if you're dead. Have a look at step four, that's in verse six. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. That's that idea of the representative again. So that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been freed from sin. It's like the story of the Count of Monte Cristo, Edmond Dantes. He's in prison. The only way to get out of prison, the only way to get out of a life sentence is to die. A prison sentence is cancelled if the prisoner dies. Prison no longer has a hold on a dead man. And in a sense, that's what actually happens to... Uh, Edmund Dantes, maybe you know the story Uh, he takes the place of a dead man in his burial sack, the sack is dumped into the sea because there's no longer any punishment for a dead man and Dantes cuts his way out and he swims to freedom a prison has no hold over a dead man, the sentence is cancelled and sin has no power over a dead man That's you or me, those of us who are Christian. We've escaped because we've died. We're no longer under its power because Jesus, our representative, dies for us. But that's not the end. That's what's happened to us in the negative, what we're not, what happened in the past. But look at how verse 4 continues, what we are now. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Death wasn't the end for Jesus. He was raised to life. And so that means that we too are raised to life because, why? Because we're in Jesus. When our representative wins, when our representative is raised to life, so are we. Our present life, The life of the Christian should have the flavour of Jesus' resurrection life. It should have the flavour of us defeating sin, of of real and true and ultimate and abundant life. That's what it means to live a, a new life. But it's not just for now. There's also a future resurrection. That's often what we think of when we think about life. We think of eternal life. Uh, life then 
Uh, that's verse 5. Have a look at it. Once again, it, it, this, this future comes to us because we're joined to Jesus. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. We can be confident about our future resurrection because we're joined to Jesus and he was resurrected. Verse 8 says, If we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. But then Paul goes on, describing the life that Jesus lives now. Because he was raised, he lives a victorious, sin-defeating, death-defeating, God-focused life. That's the sort of life that we're to live as well because we're in Jesus. Uh, There in verse 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. It's describing Christ's life. Uh, That's a wonderful truth, but when we get to verse 11, we see how his victorious life applies to us, what it means. Have a look at verse 11. In the same way, in the same way as Jesus, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Judge yourself, consider yourself, reckon yourself dead to sin. We're to think about ourselves that way because that's the reality of Jesus and we're in him. What does it mean to count yourself dead? It's not talking about positive thinking. It's not talking about imagining yourself, visualising yourself free from sin and then just claiming that. It's not some sort of spiritual cognitive behavioural therapy. It's not believe it strongly enough and make it happen. It's not what it means to reckon yourself dead to sin. It's about recognising the reality, recognising what is true. The historical event of Jesus' death spelt the end of sin's power. The historic event of your baptism marked you being joined to him. And so now you're in him. That means that death to sin, life to God, are actually the reality. That's the reality for you. And so Paul says, recognise those things. Line up your thinking with what is true. Subjectively believe what is objectively true. He says, make true in practice what is true in substance. That's what Paul means when he says, count yourself dead to sin. And notice verse 12. It's only at this point verse 12, 12 verses in, that we finally get to an ethical command. Uh, He begins verse 1 with the question, shall we just go on sinning? Now, perhaps you or I, we might have said, no, just stop it. That would have been verse 2. It would have been a very short chapter. But Paul gives us 11 verses of get your thinking right before he comes to your behaviour. 12 verses, he says in verse 12, therefore, after all the Verses I've said about your thinking, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. He's got the thinking right, 11 verses of explanation before he finally gets to exhortation. 
Just telling someone to stop sinning, it doesn't work. School teachers know that. The power to act a certain way begins with your mind. It begins with recognising your status, reckoning yourself dead to sin because you're in Christ and he's been raised to new life. Therefore, therefore, because you know that, don't let sin reign in your bodies. Right behaviour follows right thinking. Here's an example. It's like uh, when you're married. Uh, You see someone who catches your eye, someone who attracts you, and it's not your husband or your wife. Now, it's not impossible for a married person to chase after someone else. It happens. But it's against the nature of marriage. Uh, You are joined to your husband or wife. That's the reality. And so the trick, when you're tempted is to look at your wedding ring and count yourself married. Reckon yourself married. No, I'm married. I promised before my friends and my family and before God uh, I'd be faithful to my wife or my husband. We're to consider ourselves married and then behave accordingly. Uh, your, Your actions follow your thinking. And Paul's saying the same thing with your Christian connection. Reckon yourself dead to sin. You are married to Christ. Make that mental switch. Acknowledge who you are, then act accordingly. Ethics follows theology. I think perhaps that's why Paul mentions baptism back there in verse 3. It's a a strange sort of description about what baptism's doing. Um, I think it's because it's it's such a memorable event. Uh, whether it's your own baptism or or other baptisms you've witnessed. When you're tempted to sin, and when the the connection between you and Jesus seems a a little bit theoretical and a bit vague, Paul says, remember your baptism. Remember the people who in church who are watching. They heard the promises that you made, your public declaration that you were joining yourself to Jesus. Uh, You saw, they saw a visible sign on the outside of what God was doing on the inside. Uh, Remember that and reckon yourself who you are. Uh, Martin Luther has a famous quote. He says, when you're tempted, remember your baptism. When you're tempted, remember your baptism. Uh, Here's something, uh, here's some of what he says in uh, his larger catechism. Thus, we must regard baptism and make it profitable for ourselves. What does that mean? That when our sins and conscience oppress us, we strengthen ourselves and take comfort and say, nevertheless, I am baptised. But if I am baptised, it is promised me that I shall be saved and have eternal life. That's an example of what Paul means when he says, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Jesus. When we get the thinking right, then the natural outcome is the action. That's verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Verse 13. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. 
you've been a Christian for a few years, that may not sound quite as extraordinary, as revolutionary, as life-changing as it should. But if you take a close look at someone who's been a Christian uh, for a few years, perhaps, you'll see change in their life. You'll see change from week to week or month to month. It's exciting. You'll see them interested in things that used to bore them before. Things that used to have power over them lose their power. You'll see attitudes and thought processes begin to change and grow and become more like Jesus. So don't offer the the parts of your life to sin. Offer yourselves to God. Think of a way today, a way tomorrow, where you could put the different parts of your life, your time, your energy your talents, your emotions, your brain, your muscles, your wallet, your kitchen, your computer, your pen, your phone. Put them to work as instruments of righteousness that fits this new you who's dead to sin. You have been brought from death to life, so live that way. That's the lesson that I need to hear this week. And I think you need to hear it as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much in these verses that's, that's worth just uh, dwelling on. Uh, we pray that uh, you would uh, sink these truths uh, deep down into our hearts, into our minds, For those of us who know you, help us to reckon ourselves as dead to sin but alive to you because we're in Jesus. We pray that uh, that reckoning and the power of your spirit would be producing in us a desire and increasingly uh, be producing the fruit of righteousness in all the different areas of our lives. We want Jesus to be honoured in our behaviour, in our thoughts. We want Jesus to be honoured in our church. And so we pray that uh, you would do this for your honour and glory. Amen.